0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. 7 o'clock, 24 degrees, feels like 13. What better place to be than right here, right? Let's do this. It is great to see you tonight. Thanks for getting out and for being here tonight. We uh, so appreciate that. And if you're new with us, this is your first time to be at Stonegate, Uh, we would love for you to take this card. It should be under your seat. Fill that guy out during the service. At the end of the service, we'll pass around a little offering basket. And if you'll make sure that card gets in the uh, basket at the end, filled out where we can read that, it would really help us serve you. So if you would do that for us, that would be absolutely great. Uh, Okay, Luke 2 is where we're going to be tonight. Luke 2. So it would be helpful to have that out and open on your lap there where you can um, read along in uh, certain moments. Uh, Luke chapter 2. So if you've been here over the last month, we have been in the middle of an Advent series. Advent comes from an old Latin word meaning arrival. And it is the the season, typically the four weeks, four Sundays leading up to Christmas, where uh, the church gets to celebrate the incarnation of, of Jesus. We get to celebrate God. I mean, just think about the humility of God. God taking on human flesh and walking among us. We're celebrating that moment. And in uh, that event, and so if you uh, just remember back, of, you know, a few weeks, the the first week of our Advent series, we talked all the way back from Genesis three. I uh, try to make the point that the story of Christmas doesn't start in a manger; it starts in a garden. And uh, we talked about the promise made in the garden that God is going to come, you know, one day going to come and, and rescue and redeem us. Uh, Jimmy and we two talked about a promise kept from John chapter one. Last week we looked at the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew 1, and talked about how the promise that God made to come and rescue us was a promise for all people. For moral outsiders, gender outsiders, racial outsiders, for all people. It's for all, you know, all of us. And then tonight, we're going to look at, at Luke chapter 2. And uh, the, the big idea of tonight is a promise told. How the promise that goes all the way back into to Genesis chapter 3, it is a promise meant to be told. Meant to be, um, you know, come out of our lips to, to, to the world. So a promise told. That's where we're heading tonight. So I want to I point out two things. There's a lot we could talk about in this text in Luke 2. It's kind of a classic Christmas text. One that you probably are fairly familiar with. And I want to point out two things from it. Two simple things tonight um, that we can learn from Luke chapter 2. The text that you just heard read. Two things. Um, And in particular, it's gonna be two things that we can learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What what can we learn about the good news of Jesus? Here are two things we can learn. Number one, we learn that the good news of Jesus really is good news. This is what it is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. And I love how the angel announces this. Now you just see this so clearly in this text. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. This is what it is, by definition, what what it is. And look at how it goes in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Here is, you know, the angel, he's coming, he's announcing, and this is what the angel said. The angel said to them, the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who who is Christ the Lord. Now I just want to point out those five words. You might just underline these five words in verse in uh, verse 10. The words, good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. That is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. It is good news of great joy. And when you think about this good news, I think it's just important for us to kind of get our bearings around this. Good news really can change a person's life. Good news has the ability to do that, to change people. Um, I, I love the illustration I heard one pastor use um, one time long ago. He, he uh, said, just imagine some people in a, in a, a POW camp. They're prisoners of war. They've been captured. They're the enemy. They've been captured, and they're, they're in a you know POW camp. And imagine them in that camp. It is just brutal conditions. They're starving. They're gaunt. They're depressed. It is a terrible situation inside this camp. But then one day, one of the guys finds this old beaten up radio. It doesn't work, but he gets this radio. He hides it. And when he's got some time by himself, kind of away from the brutality of the guards and out of their eyesight, he just begins kind of tinkering with that radio. And he tinkers one day. Nothing happens. Tinkers and you know, tinkers another day and nothing happens. But one day he's tinkering with that radio, and the radio erupts with sound. And he tunes in this POW camp, he tunes it into a station, and there on that station, they get the news. Everybody's huddled around to the camp. They get the news that, like Allied forces, their army, right? That their people are just a few miles away. They're crushing the enemy. And it's just a matter of days before their camp is liberated. Now, can you imagine what happens inside that camp? In one sense, everything is the same, right? The guards are still brutal. They're still being mistreated. They're still starving to death. But in another sense, every prisoner in that camp has definitely changed, right? All of a sudden, these prisoners that just one minute ago were depressed, Right? They're they're starving. They're all of that. Those same prisoners now are jumping around. They're cheering. They're leaping for joy. That's the power of good news, right? And there is no better news with no greater power to change a human being than the gospel of Jesus Christ. I I love what William Tyndale, the old uh, uh, Bible translator, he says it this way. The good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ can make a man's heart glad. It can make a man's heart sing and dance and leap for joy. That is the power of good news, in particular, the good news of Jesus. Now, let me just kind of tease that out just a minute by contrasting it with something. I think this is a really important contrast that, that, it's, that you need to see, that I, I need to come to grips with. When we're thinking about the gospel being good news, here's the contrast we have to see. The gospel is primarily good news. Now, here's the contrast, not good advice. The gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to be heard as news, great news. It's not meant to be heard as, as good advice. Now, let me just tease out that distinction for a minute. Um, the, the word gospel was originally used in a military context. So, just think about how the, the context would play itself out. Picture yourself in a city three or 4,000 years ago, and, uh, and the, the king of the city, gets all kind of the able-bodied men and they, you know, he marches all the able-bodied men out of of the uh, the city because they're about to do battle with an invading army. And you're watching the army leave your city. You're watching them go out. And now you in the city, you are awaiting news. What, What has happened? And all of a sudden, one day, you see a man running to your city. Now the big question everyone in the city is asking is, what is that man? Either he is going to be a military advisor, he's going to be a military strategist, right? Or he is going to be, and this was their word, an evangelist, right? If he's the military strategist guy, he's going to come into the city. He's going to gather everyone around and he's going to give you terrible news. The news is going to be the army has lost we're all in deep trouble. It's every man for himself now. We have to fight for our lives. So he's gonna give advice. It's gonna be archers over there, the infantry, you go over there. It's time for every man to pick up their sword and fight. That's gonna be the advice that the military strategist gets. But if it's the evangelist, if it's the herald, he comes with a much different message, right? He comes not with the bad news that the army has lost. He comes with the great news that the army has won. Your victory, the victory's been secured, right? Your freedom is now secure. You are in good shape. So every person in the town, please put down your sword. The only thing left to do is to celebrate what's been done. Now, that is what the good news of Jesus is. The the Bible does not come announcing to you good advice, It is not coming to tell you, here's all the things that you need to do. That is not what the Bible is primarily doing. What the Bible is primarily doing is showing you and announcing to you, heralding to you. It's an evangelist telling you everything needed to be done has been done. That's the point of the Bible. It is not good advice on what you need to do to reach up to God. The point of the Bible is to offer you good news of everything God has done to reach down to you. That's the point of the Bible. Now, it it was interesting, this week on uh, Wednesday, I bumped into a a guy that I'd met here in Midlothian uh, years ago. And he is one of those guys who is an atheist and he's pretty angry about it. And uh, as soon as he kind of reconnected, I'm a pastor here in town. I mean, it was just, you know, the claws come out and here we go. And it was just so interesting in talking to him because when he's thinking about what what is the point of the Bible, Like, what is the point of Christianity? If he were summarizing the point of Christianity, this is the way he would do it. It's just like every other system of belief out there. The point of Christianity is to make you into a better person. The point of Christianity is for you to be a more moral person. That's the point. Then his conclusion to that is, if that is the point of Christianity, and if that's the point of every other like, system of belief, Islam, Mormonism, if, it's, if it's, they're all the same, they're just telling you how to be better people, why, do we need, like, why does it matter if you're this or that? Or why, why can't I just be kind of an atheist and I can kind of do that on my own? And my response back to him, it was just interesting kind of just teasing that out with him. In one sense, it's, I, I think his conclusion is right. If that is the point of Christianity, and it's just like every other religion, right? And, and here's the thing, every other religion, save Christianity, the point of it is to say, here's how you can reach up to God. It's, it's advice, it's, you, you, want to, you want victory? You, you wanna be okay? then here's what you need to do. It's, it's infantry, you get over there. Archers, you're over there. Here's what you need to do if, if maybe someday, quite possibly, God's gonna be okay with you. But that's just not the point of Christianity, right? That, that's just not what the point of the Bible is doing. The point of the Bible is not, here is what you need to do to make God okay with you. The point of the Bible is to say, here is what God has done so that you can be okay to him. That's the point of this whole thing. Every other religion save Christianity is advice. The point of Christianity is to say advice does not work. You are so broken in your sin that you need more than you can do if God is ever going to be okay with you. That's the point of Christianity. That's the promise that God made in the garden. It's God looking at us and saying, you're in a mess that is so deep that you can't get out of it. So wait right there and I'll come and get you. That's the point of this thing. So the gospel is, is primarily good news, not good advice. Here's a second thing, to kind of under this heading, I want to just tease out for a moment. So it's good news, and so then the question becomes, what, what is the content of that good news? The gospel is good news that we can be saved, and you see this in verse 11. So it's the, the gospel is good news, not good advice, and the gospel is good news that we can be saved. You see it in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour. A Savior, that's who is born. It's a Savior. His name is Christ the Lord. Now, I mentioned this last week, and it's probably just worth reiterating, that I think a a good, appropriate way to think about Christmas is it's God the Father giving us the gift of his Son, but there are many gifts that you'll receive in your life that are not easy to receive, right? I mean, we talked about this last week. If if you just picture that moment, you're, you know, it's Christmas morning, you're unwrapping the gift, and... uh, and you unwrap the gift and you see a book and the title of the book is Five Steps to Stop Being Annoying. Just to stop it. Five steps to stop talking so much, right? If you get a book like that, it's a hard gift to receive because in the moment of receiving it, you are admitting something about yourself that you need to stop talking so much. Or you're you're receiving the news about yourself that you really are annoying and you've got to stop it, right? Now, just amplify that times like infinity and there's the gospel of Jesus Christ. What makes Jesus a hard gift to receive for us is in the moment of receiving a gift of a savior, you're admitting that you need saving. In the moment of receiving Jesus as a rescuer, you are admitting that you need to be rescued. And that takes humility on our part, right? I mean, this is why it's hard to receive Jesus for so many people. And the Bible just affirms over and over and over in a lot of different ways that we are all in need of rescue, that we're all have made a mess of our life that we can't clean up on our own. Right. This is Romans 1-3. through 3. This is Ephesians 2. This is Romans 6-23. It's just over and over and over again in the Bible, we learn that apart from Jesus, our condition could not be more threatening or more urgent. That if we're living apart from Jesus, our condition could not be more threatening and more urgent. Sometimes I use the picture... You know, if you just want to think about, like, the whole lot of us humans and how we're living, I think one picture that kind of summarizes that is you could picture us all living down in this valley. You might call the valley the valley of sin. This is where you do your life. It's where I do my life. It's where we all do all of our lives. We're living down here in the valley of sin. And up over this valley is this um, massive dam, and that dam is holding back the water of God's wrath. This is where we all live. We're down here in the valley of sin. We've got this massive dam, this huge watery wrath behind it. It's God's righteous judgment over our sin. And this is where we're all kind of doing our life. And every day that we live down here in the valley of sin, we are proactively sinning against God. We're doing things that he said we shouldn't do. And every moment we do something that we shouldn't do, we are adding more water behind the dam. And, and we're passively sinning. We're not doing the things God says we should do. Every day, your life is full of those moments. My life is full of those moments. And every time that we proactively sin or passively sin, we're just adding more and more water back behind the dam. This is where you live and it's where I live. And the Bible just could not be more clear that the reason our condition is more threatening and more urgent than anything we could dare imagine is because there is going to be a day where the dam breaks, And the water of God's wrath comes crashing down into the valley. And the Bible says that on that day, that men and women are going to be crying out for mountains to fall on them. It's a day where we're going to be eternally ruined apart from Jesus. This is why our condition is more threatening and more urgent than anything that we could ever imagine. And, you know, it's just so humbling and so... um, sobering to think that the only thing separating us from that moment of the, that, that dam breaking is this thin line called death. And it's a thin line, isn't it? It's the only thing separating that, that moment from us right now. Now, that is the picture of our need for rescue. And this is why the good news of Jesus is so, so good. This is why it's good news of great joy. We're all perishing down in the valley of sin and brokenness. Eternal ruin is right around the corner. But God... But God, God the Father looks down into the valley of sin and God the Father sees us in the mess of our sin and says, wait right there, I'll come and get you. So God the Father sends God the Son down into the valley of sin. God himself enters into the valley of sin. God himself restrained into the flesh and and bones of a little baby born in a manger, but born ultimately for a cross. And on that fateful Friday, a couple of thousand years ago, God, the son, is drug outside of Jerusalem, nailed to a cross, and there the water of God's wrath breaks. But it doesn't hit rebels that deserve it. It hits the one righteous man that doesn't. And there on the cross, God, the son, receives all of God's watery wrath for your sin and my sin. Here is the good news of Jesus. He absorbs every last bit of wrath for your sin. For, for my, you know, if you want to think about the good news of Jesus in four words, it's Jesus in my place. It's God the Son receiving everything that you and I deserve. He stands in our place. And it's not just Jesus in our place, then we get to stand in Jesus' place. Then we get to receive everything that Jesus deserves from God the Father. He gets All of of the wrath that we deserve, we get all the warm affection from God the Father that Jesus deserves. That is the good news of Jesus. For all those who now receive him, to those who believe in his name, all of that wrath gets applied to Jesus. All of God's warm affection comes crashing down into your life. It's Jesus in our place. This is the good news that the angels were proclaiming on, on that night with the shepherds. It is the good news that we can be saved from our sin. So here's one thing we learn from this passage in Luke. It is a promise, the gospel is a promise of good news. Here's the second thing we learn. The second thing we learn is the gospel is a promise to be told. So it's a promise of good news. And secondly, it's a promise that's intended to be told. It's a promise to be told. You see this in verses 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. See it right there. Let me read it for you. Luke chapter two, starting in verse 16. And they went out, this is the the the, uh, the shepherds, they went out with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them. Concerning this child, they made it known, they told it. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let me just break this down into a couple of categories. Talking about the promise of the gospel, it's meant to be told. Here's the first one. Good news is meant to be told. This is what good news, It, it just, it's almost a natural reflex when you hear good news as a human being created in the image of God, we just can't help but tell good news. Good news is meant to be told. Um, Sally Lloyd-Jones, when she is talking about this passage, we give out the Jesus Storybook Bible everywhere. If you've got little kids, you should own the Jesus Storybook Bible and read that with your kids often. When she's talking about this story in Luke 2, I love what she does. As she's introducing the story, she really just gets us thinking about what is going on in the heart of God the Father. And this is the way she says it. like what, what is getting him to a point of sending an angel to tell the shepherds about this little boy born in a manger in Bethlehem? Here's what she says. She says, you see, God was like a new daddy. And he couldn't keep the good news to himself. He'd been waiting all of these years for this moment, and now he wanted to tell everyone. Now, I love that, because that's what's what's, the the underlying issue behind Luke 2 is that, There is great news. Jesus has been born and God the Father was like a newborn dad. He just couldn't contain the news. He had to tell it. So he sends these angels and they tell the shepherds. But then I also love it because you have the shepherds who received this great news and they couldn't help it. It just, they couldn't contain it. They had to tell it. So you've got God the Father who couldn't contain it, the shepherds who couldn't contain it. And it's illustrating something for us, that good news is built of an expanding nature. This is what good news is made of. The nature of good news is it just has a way of expanding. Good news is meant to be told. Now, you see this play out throughout the Bible. The idea of good news is meant to be told. It's of an expanding nature, and it has to be told. Like, if people are going to receive the good news of Jesus, God has a way for that to happen, and that is for people who know the good news of Jesus to talk about the good news of Jesus. And you see this in in Romans chapter 10. It's going to be on the screen for you. Listen to how Paul affirms this. The good news is meant to be told. It has to be told. He says it this way. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now just settle on that for a minute. Just think on that. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you tonight feel like you have sinned your way out of the grace of God, Paul's reminding us, You can't do that because anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. But then he goes on, verse 14. How are they going to call on him of whom they have not believed? How are they going to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they going to hear without someone preaching it to them? And how are they going to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, isn't that an interesting passage? I'm I'm just saying that if I'm God, I just, out of all the varied ways that you could get the good news of Jesus out to the world, I'm just not sure I would have looked at all the varied ways and just pushed my chips in on, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go with mankind. That's how we're gonna do it. But that's, that's God's plan. He's looking at people just like you and me, flawed people people who are timid and afraid. And he's saying, you're my plan to get the good news of the gospel out. That just like the angels, I, my heart can't contain it. I want you to know about this good news. And then just like the shepherds, here's my intent in your life. I want you to be a people who go and make known what I've told you. You're my plan to get the good news of Jesus out. Good news has to be told. Now, let me tease it out to the next step here. Announcing good news flows from a deep love of Jesus. like A heart that wants and is eager to get the good news of Jesus out is a heart who actually loves Jesus, who, is, who really does feel like the good news of Jesus is really great news of great joy. That's who naturally is going to talk about the good news of Jesus. Years ago, a friend of mine, he tweeted a question and the question went like this. Why are Christians negligent, hesitant, reluctant, and even resistant to speak the gospel? Why is that? Here's the question again. Why are Christians negligent, hesitant, reluctant, and even resistant to speak the gospel? Steve Timmis is another friend of mine. He's an Englishman. And he responded back by saying this. Why is that? Here's the reason. Because we are not truly, madly, and deeply besotted with Jesus. Now, I did what any American who would never think of using a word like besotted. I did what any good American would do. And I had to go to the dictionary to look that thing up. And here's what besotted means. To be intoxicated with. Captivated by, to be obsessed with something. Why are we oftentimes negligent, hesitant, reluctant, and even resistant to speak the gospel? Because we are not—we're truly not—we are not truly madly and deeply besotted with Jesus. See, I, it's so funny when when I think when I think about my like lack of. Um, willingness and eagerness to talk about the good news of Jesus with others, my kind of defense sort of mechanisms instantly pop up and I start thinking like this. If I just had like a new technique or a better method or something new, then I would surely do it. But that's, at the end of the day, it's just not true. Like what we need is not a better technique and a new kind of thing to do it with. What we really need is a heart besotted with Jesus. Maybe you could think of it this way. Your capacity, your energy, your willingness to talk about the good news of Jesus isn't dependent upon a new method or another tool, but on a vibrant love of Jesus. That's what it's dependent upon. Our willingness to talk about Jesus is built on and flows from a vibrant love of Jesus. Maybe you can think of it this way. What you love has a way of naturally making it to your mouth like what your heart really loves, you can't help but talk about those things. I mean, the the last movie that you saw and you loved, I'll guarantee you, you told someone about that. You can't help but tell someone about that. We have a, a family that just got a foster placement last week, a little newborn baby, just precious. And it was so great. Last Sunday, they just couldn't help but coming up at the end of the service and just kind of parading that little guy around, showing him off a little bit, letting, you know, introducing. They just couldn't help it. Now, why is that? Because this is what good news does to any of our hearts. We cannot help but talk about what we feel deep down is really great news. What we really deeply love has a way of making it to our mouth. Now, let's just apply this for a second. Now think about this in your own life. If if right now, when you think about your own life, If you would say, I'm negligent, hesitant, and reluctant, and even resistant to talk about Jesus. I want you to think about for a minute, why is that? Like, why is that true in my life? Why why, why is that? And I want you just to consider, might it be that our hearts aren't monopolized with Jesus? Taken over by Jesus? Besotted with Jesus? Might that be the reason for that? And here's kind of the flip side of that. Until our affections, our love is monopolized by Jesus, is dominated to Jesus, we're never going to be eager to talk about Jesus. John Stott, this quote has just stuck with me for years now. Listen to how he talks about this. This is going to be on the screen for you. He says it this way. The, and, and by the way, there are parts of me that hate This quote. Like, my inner lawyer wants to come out and just kind of rebel against it. No, there's got to be a different reason. But I think he is spot on when he says this. He says it like this. The greatest single hindrance to evangelism today is the secret poverty of our own spiritual experience. It's like one of those moments where you just take the dagger out of your heart, you know. The greatest single hindrance to evangelism today is the secret poverty of our own spiritual experience. I just wonder if that could be true for you tonight. If it's true for me tonight. If the reason that Jesus isn't hitting my lips as often as Jesus should be hitting my lips with other people, I just wonder if that's because my heart is not madly and deeply besotted with Jesus. And what if we all just took a moment here right now, and I just want to invite you to do this, just to ask Jesus to do that to your heart. If nothing else happened tonight, but that you left here begging the Lord to give you a besottedness with Jesus, then that would be a win for every one of us in this room. So can, I, can we just, just take a moment here and just right there where you are, I just want to bow with you and just, I want to ask the Lord to do that for us. God, would you do that? God, we want to be a people who love you. God, we want to be a people marked not with spiritual poverty, but with spiritual vibrancy. God, I want that. So Father, through the power of your spirit tonight, would you do that in me? God, would you make us into that sort of a church family? who that would be true for us? God, would you make the mark of this church an obsession with Jesus, a deep, abiding longing for Jesus? Oh, God, would you do that? It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Amen. So announcing the good news of Jesus flows from a heart that is deeply in love with Jesus. Here's the last thing and we'll kind of finish here. Urgency in announcing the good news of Jesus. So like us waking up with like an urgency around these things and like a passion, like not tomorrow, but today we need to talk about these things to, to people. Urgency in announcing the good news of Jesus flows from a deep love for people. So tie these two things together. So on one hand, if a willingness to talk about Jesus is directly connected to a love for Jesus, like a heart that's besotted by Jesus, then an urgency in talking about Jesus is directly tied to a love of people, to how much do we do we you know love people? I you know what, the Apostle Paul is one of my favorite people in the Bible for multiple reasons, but one of the reasons that I love um, reading the New Testament and in particular about the Apostle Paul is that, you know, he is one of those guys who, who just carried with him day in, day out an eagerness to talk about Jesus and an urgency to talk about Jesus. Both of those were present. I like, he woke up with it like, with a want, like today, man, I want to tell somebody about Jesus. So God, would you please like bring some people around me? God, would you, you know, please kind of direct my steps and would you arrange some providential meetings that I want to talk about Jesus with people? Now, the question becomes, what lies underneath that urgency for Paul? And I think one of the the underlying issues we find in Romans chapter nine, I'm going to put this on the screen for us, Romans chapter nine. And I just want you to look at how, how Paul feels about other people, his heart for people, his deep love for people. He says it this way in Romans chapter nine. And by the way, in Romans nine, he is lamenting his fellow Israelites not receiving Jesus. He's lamenting that. And this is what he says in Romans nine. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I mean, he is broken up about this. He goes on, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's looking at his fellow countrymen, his people. He's looking at them and he is just broken into a million pieces that they are stiff arming God, that they are rejecting Jesus. And he is pleading with God in Romans nine. He's looking up at God and he's saying, God, I would gladly be cast out If they would be brought in, I would gladly be eternally ruined if you would just, if you would give them like eternal prosperity. God, I want them to be saved that bad. That is how much, when he's looking at his fellow countrymen, that is the way that he loved them. Now, let's just apply that for a second. When is the last time we've prayed like that for someone? God, I'm looking at this person and God, I I love them so much. That God, I I would gladly be cast out if you would just bring them in. God, I want them to be saved that badly. But when's the last time we have been that brokenhearted over our neighborhood, over our coworkers, over our like family? Like you're about to see family over the next couple of weeks. When's the last time we've had that sort of a pleading heart before God? God, would you please save them? God, would you please rescue them? I want to read john three thirty six for you, and I you know but part of what you're seeing in in Romans nine is Paul his deep love for people and his awareness that apart from them receiving Jesus, they are going to be eternally ruined, and that did something to Paul when those dots connected, here are people that I love, and these people that I love are going to be eternally ruined apart from something happening in their life, apart from them receiving Jesus. That combination of things built a deep urgency in Paul. Now, I want to give you a verse and just, I'm going to read it five or six times. And I'm just praying that the Lord might use this verse to link up this reality. People that we love are going to be eternally ruined apart from them receiving Jesus. And as those two things link up, I'm just asking the Lord to do something in your heart and in my heart. I'm asking the Lord to bring about an urgency in our life that would feel different for us, that we would wake up tomorrow with a renewed sense of man, I want to talk about Jesus because apart from Jesus, people that I love are going to be eternally ruined. John 3:36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God Of God remains on him. Just picture your workplace. Just get get those faces in your mind. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Maybe you could picture your neighborhood people up and down your street. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him, remains on her. I just want you to picture your, your Christmas gathering As you get to f- together with family. Just picture that scene those faces, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. They have eternal life. That's what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ good news of great joy. There is eternal life offered in Jesus, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. oh God, would you you do something to our hearts? God, would you do something that a sermon cannot do? That just reading a text cannot do? God, would you do something that only you can do through the power of your spirit? God, would you cultivate in our soul an eagerness to talk about Jesus? God, God, would you... Would you create in our soul a spiritual vibrancy that that like we actually love Jesus? God, would you cultivate that in us? God, would you cultivate souls in this room that are besotted with Jesus? And oh God, would you Would you break our hearts for for people that we love? That apart from Jesus are going to remain under your wrath? Oh God, would you do that? I just want to give you a second there where you are to... Allow the spirit of God to press upon you the things that would be most helpful tonight and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. Maybe this would be a moment where just there where you are, you can just take a look at your own heart and and ask the question, am I madly and deeply besotted with Jesus? And if your answer is no to that question, God doesn't shame you tonight. He's not trying to make fun of you tonight. He's trying to invite you into into life tonight. He's just just putting his son back before you, the greatest thing in the universe, the best news of the universe. He's just putting him back before you tonight and saying, "Do, do you see him? That this is where life is. This is where hope is. This is where your satisfaction is. This is, this is where good news of great joy is. So, so why don't you just come on back to my son tonight? So if that's you tonight and there's a missing spiritual vibrancy, God, invite us to bring that to him and to just just plead with him, God, I know my heart's not where it should be. But oh God, would you by the power of your spirit change me? God, would you restore my affections for Jesus? God, would you help the good news of Jesus feel like the greatest news in the universe to me? Because right now it doesn't, but God, I want it to. God, I want it to. maybe you could ask God to give you a a waking awareness, like every morning, it's gonna be Monday morning in a few hours, that God by his grace would wake you up on Monday and you would wake up with this reality. Apart from Jesus, we're all eternally ruined. And because I know Jesus, I've got eternal life before me. And today, God, today, would, would you bring someone into my path? God, today, would you break my heart for my neighbor? God, today, would you give me a pleading heart ready to pray and intercede on behalf of those around me? God, today, would you give me an urgency? God, today, Would you help me live on the brink of eternity, knowing the only thing that separates me from eternity is this thin line called death. The only thing separating my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers from eternity, from standing before you is this thin line called death. And God, would you help me feel today that the greatest news of the universe in light of that is Jesus So, oh God, would you help us? God, would you help us see tonight that the promise of Jesus is great news. Great news containing great joy for all people. In Jesus, you offer us a savior. A savior. And oh God, I pray that we would be a people, we would be a church, who the good news of Jesus is constantly coming out of our mouth. God, by your grace, would you do that? It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.